one aspect of Christianity that you may find surprising, you may not, is that the gospel, the message of Jesus, the good news of Jesus and what he has done, it reorients so much, literally everything for that matter, about how we understand ourselves, about how we understand life. And one aspect of that is on the concept or the topic of greatness. This is something that our world, that our culturally, that we as human beings pursue in various ways, in various capacities. Guinness Book of World Records has to be published again and again every year because new world records are set and then broken, set and then broken. We enjoy and we pursue uh, pushing the limits of exploration and adventure. We seek greatness in our academic pursuits or our professional pursuits or our athletic pursuits. Everywhere we look, we see greatness upheld as a virtue to be pursued. And yet Jesus speaks to this concept of greatness or, or being exceptional. And you might wonder, well, I don't, I don't pursue greatness in much of my life. What does that have to do for me? Well, actually, in God's goodness, he reveals to us in Luke 9 a different kind of greatness that, frankly, we all are called to as followers of Christ. So follow along as I read from Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 50. May God give us the grace to set our eyes on Christ and see how He sets His goodness upon our hearts. Now about eight days after these sayings, He took with Him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As He was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him. And he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? 
bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Peter rebuked, but excuse me, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument rose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. May God write these words upon our hearts that live by Him. There's a big idea, an argument that I want to hold before you this morning. It is to behold the glory of Jesus and you will become great. Behold the glory of Jesus and you will become great. I want us to make our way through this text by considering His glory, His grace, and then that concept, that idea of greatness. And so first, we look at glory to be revealed. We consider Jesus, we look at glory to be revealed, and this is in verses 28 to 36, this, this event known as the transfiguration. Perhaps you've heard of this event or heard reference to it in Scripture, or maybe not, and it strikes you as quite interesting. Jesus and three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, they go up on this mountain to pray, and Jesus is praying, and then all of a sudden his appearance of his face is altered, and his clothing becomes dazzling white. Quite a spectacular event. It tells us these poor disciples, they were in verse 32, they were heavy with sleep. Talk about a way to wake up, right? Jesus, the guy you're having prayer meeting with up on the mountain, starts to glow. Now, it tells us that Moses and Elijah came down and they were talking with him. Now, these are two Old Testament figures. Moses is thought of as, as uh, representing the Old Testament law. It is through him that God gave his law to his people, whom he redeemed out and, and rescued out of Egypt familiar with that story with the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, and God rescues, redeems, saves a people for himself. And then through Moses, he gives them a law by which they're going to walk in obedience, going to walk in faithfulness to him, going to walk as the people whom he has bought, whom he has redeemed. And so Moses re represents the law, and then you've got Elijah who represents Old Testament prophets, and prophets of old were sent by God to call his people back to himself, to call them to repentance, to call them to return to a holy life in honor of their God who had redeemed them for the glory of his name. 
And so, but the problem is, or one problem is, that throughout the history of the Old Testament people of Israel, perhaps similar to history of our lives, is that, that their spiritual nature was marked by fits and starts, stops and stops, starts and stops, excuse me, uh, uh, where, where, where there were times of spiritual highs and then times of spiritual malaise. So the people of Israel were marked by their need for, well, they're marked by a few things, one of which being their, their, their inability to consistently follow the Lord in obedience and their need for a greater rescue than even what, they achieved, what was achieved for them as they were brought out of Egypt. And now what's interesting about this is, skipping down, verse 35 tells us, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Here's what I think is happening. What Peter and James and John are seeing, and what we are seeing, is that our Old Testaments all march to this seminal central figure, Jesus the Christ himself. So he is the means by which we understand all of Scripture up to this point. I don't know if you've seen the movie uh, National Treasure. It's probably, I don't know, 15, 20 years old at this point. Uh, Nicholas Cage plays a treasure hunter who is looking for a treasure map or a treasure that is supposedly uh, painted in some kind of invisible ink on the back of the Declaration of Independence. All totally believable. And uh, in one scene, he is trying to um, uh, 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 get, he, he, he has found these hidden glasses that are some kind of ocular, I don't know, some eye thing that you put on and you, you're able to see the map or you're able to see the things on the back of the Declaration of Independence. What we're seeing in the Transfiguration is that what God is showing us that if you want to understand your Old Testament, you want to understand your Bible, Jesus and the gospel is the, the lens by which you look down upon this. The gospel, Jesus is the means by which we understand the law, the prophets. Jesus is the means by which we understand the great events of the Old Testament, the Exodus, these people being brought out of Egypt. And actually, I think that God the Father himself testifies of this, but we see this reference, we see this in another way too. If you look at verse 31, it tells us uh, Jesus is talking to two men, Moses and Elijah, and then it says in verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That word departure, you might have a little footnote there. It, it says, or exodus. The Exodus in the Old Testament is this great event where God redeemed and rescued his people from sure death and brought them to life and brought them to himself. What Jesus is telling Moses and Elijah and what we are seeing is that he is going to accomplish a greater Exodus for the rescue and the redemption and the salvation of his people. And what he's talking about that he is going to go endure in his cross in Jerusalem. You see, the departure is going to be in Jerusalem is it's going to be an exodus by which he leads you and I. Not through the waters of the Red Sea that is parted, but he leads us and he is our salvation by which the high waters that surround us of our own sinfulness and would seek our destruction, by which those are pushed to the side, those are endured by him who went from death to life, or from life to death, in order that we may go from spiritual death to life. So he's showing us Jesus is the means by which we understand this. Now, there's 
Old Testament imagery throughout here. There's Moses and Elijah. There's this talk of departure. Now, there's one other thing that I, I want you to see. Pick up in verse 32. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. So they, understandably, it might take them a minute to, to come to terms with what's going on. And as the men were parting from him, Peter sees, look at Peter, he sees Moses and Elijah about to leave the mountain. And Peter says, uh, Master, it, it, it is good that we are here. Understatement of the year, okay? Transfigured Jesus, Old Testament figures, Moses and Elijah, Peter, James, and John get to go up on the mountain. And, they, and Peter said, hey, it, it's good we're here. Let's stay. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And I love that Luke throws in this like editorial note here, not knowing what he said. Peter didn't know what he was talking about. You know, it's interesting. If you were to look back uh, at chapter, at the same chapter, chapter 9, verse 20, uh, they're talking about who the crowds say Jesus is, and Jesus turns and looks at, at his close disciples and says, but who do you say I am? And this is what we saw last week in the text, and Peter says, well, you're the Christ of God, which is like the, the fantastic, wonderful, didn't miss a beat Sunday school answer. Yeah, A, a plus, you got that one right, Peter. And I don't know if this is, it's not intended to be humorous, it's just recording the facts, but it is humorous. It's like Peter nails this question, and then like on an exam that maybe is three or four pages long, where you got like the first page right, and you're feeling pretty confident, and then you turn over and you look at the rest of the questions, and it's like, these are in another language. I don't know what he's talking about. Now we see Peter and the disciples, this is not a spectacular time for them. Not an example of, 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 of knowing all the answers, or of understanding what Christ, who Christ is and what he has come to do. But don't take my word for it. Um, look at this. He says, you know, let's build these tents. And as he's saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. This is verse 34. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. There are a lot of times you might put your foot in your mouth. I have a long history of it in my own life. But I guarantee you, you have never put your foot in your mouth in such an unbelievable level that God himself has interrupted you and told you, be quiet. Stop talking. Do you see that? A voice came, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Peter, cut it out. Now, what, what, what's Peter suggesting here? Now, there's some of this Old Testament imagery. He's, he wants to build these tents for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. It's not just like he wants to pitch tents and, hey, this is a beautiful campground. We can spend a long weekend. No, he's, his mind is actually probably going back to Exodus chapter 40 when the, the glory of God uh, indwelt the, the, the tabernacle and the tent of meeting that the people of Israel had constructed where the presence of God would dwell with his people through a heavy cloud uh, 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 filling that temple or filling that tabernacle, excuse me. And so Peter, what he's seeing here is he's seeing, I see the presence of God, let's build the proper tabernacle for him to dwell here with us. And once again, understanding these Old Testament analogies and how they fit with our understanding of Jesus in the New Testament, God says, no, 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 no. What you have to understand is that my presence doesn't come and just dwell in the, in the form of a cloud anymore. My presence with you and amongst you actually dwells in the form of a person, and that is through my son. 
listen to him. Is your faith dry, cold? You could use a little spark to the, to the kindling of your soul that needs to be awakened to trusting the Lord, to having confidence in Him, to understanding what His purposes might be for your life, or understanding even if He has purposes for your life, or even if He's out there. You know, the single greatest exhortation that I can give you, listen to Him. Open up God's Word. Read what Jesus would say. See how Jesus ties God's Word together and see how Jesus invites you into the work that He is doing and brings you to Himself. You know, there's a danger that we can face, sometimes even as Christians. Christians are not immune to spiritually dry seasons. And there's a danger that we can fall into where Perhaps we go about our lives, perhaps we even regularly come to church on Sundays, and and yet we still sometimes battle the spiritual dryness. And the danger is that just as I would not go to a restaurant when I'm hungry and think I'm going to get filled by just being present, but I have to eat, the danger would be that you are just surrounded enough by Christian things that you're in the restaurant, you're sitting down, but you're not eating. The way you eat is to open God's Word and listen to Him. And you, you, you do this, and you do this continually, and you do this repeatedly, knowing and praying, God, I trust that you're going to begin to speak to me through your word. And not necessarily in a manner where he speaks to you some great profound truth, as if God is speaking to these guys on the top of this mountain, but in a manner by which his word and his son that he presents through his word becomes real and, becomes, uh, and, and grips your soul in ways he hasn't gripped it before. Or maybe it's been a long time since he has. So, you want to become great? Look at the glory to be revealed in our Christ. But we don't just look at the glory to be revealed as this transfigured Jesus. This is a picture of him who will come again one day. This is what we anticipate as followers of Christ. But we also look at the grace of the cross of Christ. The first part, look at glory, looking ahead. Secondly, now we look at grace of the cross and we look back. We look in the rearview mirror. Verse 37 tells us, On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, his spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. It's a terrible situation this man and his son are in. And you you, you read up to this point, and you expect, oh, Jesus, the one who is able to heal and give sight to the blind and even give life to the dead, and and just this merciful, compassionate uh, uh, one who is... Who, who, who is always working these miracles on behalf of his people, how is he going to respond? I know he's going to respond in love. He's Jesus. Well, he says, verse 41, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. So we have two options. Either Jesus was just really worn out Perhaps a mountain up or some time up at the top of the mountain camping with Peter really does that to a man. I don't know. Or perhaps there's something else going on here. Let's go with the second one. There's something else going on here. 
See, Jesus speaks not to this man, but speaks to all who are gathered, faithless, twisted generation. And it tells us at the end of verse 42, Jesus rebuked the spirit, healed the boy, gave him back to his father. And then verse 43, all are astonished at the majesty of God. So now we, he, he works the miracle, but now we have to understand what Jesus is revealing in this miracle. Or what he's revealing in this statement to those who are gathered with this man and his crippled son. Understand this, and this is how it will all make sense. Jesus has come down from the mountain. He's re-entered earth with all of its problems, the world with all of its griefs, the, 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 the human existence with all of its brokenness and even death. And he sees a father who is brokenhearted over the condition of his son. And what this is, is, is Jesus quotes here, he quotes from Deuteronomy, where it is describing the spiritual condition of the people of Israel who are unrepentant in their idolatry, who have, God has brought them into a land for his own glory and for their own good, and yet they are worshiping false gods. And what, he's, what we see here is that Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy where he's basically saying this, this, this twisted and faithless generation, they still deny their God, they still refuse to trust him, they still refuse to walk in obedience to him. They have actually the same spiritual condition that you who are gathered here today have the same spiritual condition as all who did back, your ancestors back, as you remember from Deuteronomy. That's what Jesus is saying to this audience. And what he's revealing to them is he's actually saying to them, you need a miracle greater than this boy being healed. This boy in his sickness and his infirmity, even in his demon possession, is an illustration of who you really are. And you need a miracle greater than this. And so then he starts to take us on this journey where we look back to the cross. You see the second part of verse 43, while they were all marveling at everything he is doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. I know we've had a lot of Old Testament illustrations here, but let me give you one more. I think this is it for today. Back in Isaiah chapter 6, if you're familiar with the call of Isaiah the prophet, where he's brought into the throne room of God and he, he is undone by it. And, and, and he cries out, and, and, or he hears the seraphim and, and, and this, this, heavenly, this heavenly chorus crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. And Isaiah says, Lord, I am undone. What would you have to do with me? And the Lord cleanses him and sets him apart and commissions him. He says, whom will I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, I'll go. And the Lord commissions him out on a ministry where he is going to go proclaim the glory of God as an Old Testament prophet, calling the people of God back to God. But what happens in that commission in Isaiah 6? God tells Isaiah, I'm sending you out, but here's the problem. They're not going to listen to you. Their hearts are hardened in their sinfulness. And I'm not going to let them listen to you. Because they need to see something greater. They need to see something that can accomplish their redemption. Even greater than being brought out of Egypt. 
And so Jesus says, you guys listen here in verse 44. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. One thing that is fascinating. One of the questions, one of the struggles, one of the doubts that I have had about the Christian faith in my life is a God who is so powerful. Suffering, like we see here, people crippled, people enduring the affliction of, of, of terrible physical or mental illness, enduring the weight, the pain of, of, of the brokenness of this world with all that it has, with loss and grief and violence and horrific sin committed by one person against another. And I've thought to myself, Lord, how can you cause this? How can you allow this to be? And that might be where you are today, where you say, okay, Christianity and, and, and this God stuff, it sounds realistic, but I've got a lot of questions for God. I look at the headlines, I look at the news, and I don't know what to do with these testimonies that He is good with the problems of a world that is not good. I would be right there with you. There have been times where my soul was just welled up in confusion where I wondered, what, Lord, what are you doing? But the thing that keeps me from walking away from this is we have a Savior here who did not stay up on the mountain. Verse 37 tells us He came down the mountain. And he came down the mountain and diagnosed a problem that was far greater than sickness or illness. But it was a faithless and twisted people who would not trust in God. And he says to them, you think you need my word pronouncing healing over the boy. But let these words sink into your ear. Verse 44, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, prophesying his death. See, he came down that mountain. The transfigured Christ became the crucified Christ. The glory that he had on the mountain would be replaced by shame as he, as he endured and experienced the nakedness and the humiliation of the cross. The transfigured one whose face lit up in glory became the one whose face was bearing the weight of a uh, crown of thorns and was disfigured from the beatings that he endured as he went to the cross. The bright clothes that glowed with the radiance of the glory of God became torn and bloody garments that thieves pilfered and took for themselves as they were ripped off him as he was crucified. Instead of being surrounded in glory by Moses and Elijah, who was beside him on the cross? Two fellow criminals enduring crucifixion. He exchanged the approval and the presence of the Father with him for the forsakenness, enduring the very just wrath of God 
not for his sins, but for ours. When we look at the grace of the cross of the king who came down the mountain, and we look ahead at the glory to be revealed when we are brought up the mountain, it is then that we can begin to understand greatness in humbly beholding our King Jesus. The story concludes with two last notes. Remember I said this is not a shining moment for the disciples. What is the only fitting response for Jesus revealing that He, the one who was transfigured, would be disfigured on a cross? Well, verse 46, I don't know what the appropriate response is, but I know what the wrong response is because we see that here. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the great. How do you go from that to this? How, how do these disciples say, oh, Jesus, I'm sorry you will endure the cross. Hey, which of us is going to be greatest in the kingdom of God? You know, Peter's got some really nice traits. John, he, he's, he's a really good writer and public speaker. Uh, you know, maybe James. I don't know. What, what do you think, Jesus? Which of us is going to be greatest? Verse 47, Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, he took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. He shows us greatness is found in humility. And I think humility is only understood by not, not some kind of false sense of humility, but the real humility is found in beholding the glory of our Savior and being awestruck by the grace of His cross. Because what you do is when your mind is captivated by the glory of a king who will come back for his people and reign in the fullness of the splendor of God himself, it tells us the new creation will not even have a sun because the glory of Christ will be the light by which it lives. When you see and you know that and your heart is captivated by the Christ who is to come, you are willingly able and you have the grace of God to humble yourself in service to others in this life. And that is what Christ calls us to, dear church. I'd say, I haven't thought about being great lately. Well, that's probably because our ideas of greatness are distorted. You want to go find greatness Go down to Gillette Stadium in the midst of three Taylor Swift concerts this weekend, if you hadn't heard. Sells out the place, thousands of dollars a ticket. Why do you think that is? Because she is a great musician. If music is not your thing, go to the Patriots season opener in a few months. 
At that first game, the second week of September, the Eagles versus the Patriots, they're going to be honoring Tom Brady, freshly retired. They're going to be celebrating him. Why? Because he was mediocre? No, because he was great. Right now, that ticket is the highest price on the ticket, secondary ticket market, the highest price NFL regular season ticket of the upcoming season thus far. We don't pay money to see mediocrity. We aren't captivated by mediocrity. We're captivated and moved by greatness and glory. And what Jesus holds up for us here is the way that the gospel helps us to understand this is that we see the glory of He who is to come. We see the grace of His cross. And we are transformed in a manner where we find greatness in following Him is in revealing, in evidencing, in illustrating in our life, in our heart, in our words towards one another the glory of the Christ who we represent. See, He brings a child into the equation here because a child can't give you anything. A child doesn't cook your meals. A child doesn't provide your shelter. A child doesn't give you greater social status. A child is entirely reliant upon you for care. And he says, when you understand my glory, you'll you'll be set apart to serve the needs of those who need to see my glory, who don't need to hear about your glory. And you'll be able to lift them to be able to see the wonder of Jesus who has come and who will come again and who offers them to come to him by his grace. So he calls us to greatness here in a manner of radical humility towards one another that we can't escape, but we have the responsibility to because in this radical humility towards one another, putting their needs above our own, seeking to serve those within our midst and outside of our midst who can give us nothing in return, what do we do in that? We evidence before them a Savior who has changed us. And this is what we see in this call to humility. The second story, John answered as if uh, we, we don't want Peter to be the only one who gives some terrible answers. John answers in verse 49, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. What, what he's saying here is, Lord, we know other people might think highly of you, but we know we're the special ones. And so we kind of have this service to you We've got it trademarked, copyrighted. A couple of the guys, actually, while you were up on the mountain, they went to the trademark office and, and got that set aside. Jesus says, no, you guys stop. Don't stop that guy for the one who is not against you. Is for you. He's basically saying to them, don't overestimate who you are in your service to me. Keep your eyes, keep your heart, keep your soul trusting in me and with your mind set upon my glory that is to be revealed at my coming and my grace that is seen in my cross. And what you will do as you listen to me, remember the Father tells us to do that, and as you continually orbit around the glory of who Jesus is, he begins to filter out the selfishness, the pride, the, hum- the, 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 the things about us that would want to puff ourselves up. And he makes us great 
by making us more like himself. You know, that's what we need in this church family. You don't need more Stevens. You don't need more of any of us. We need us to be continually transformed into the image of our King. Behold the glory of Jesus and you will become great.